Episode number six. Today we're talking about crime prevention in rental housing and the crime-free multi-housing program with our special guest, the man who created it, Tim Ziering. This is the Crime School Radio Show, where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe. Leading today's discussion is security expert, Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. Today's topic is the crime-free multi-housing program with a goal to keep illegal activity off rental property. If you own one or more multifamily apartment properties or you're in the business of residential property management, then this program is for you. Ask yourself these questions. Do you want help to prevent criminal activities from occurring on your property? Like open and active drug activity, gang activity, loitering, trespassing, graffiti, vandalism, property damage, burglary to your rental units, stolen cars, and even physical assaults of your residents. Do you want your apartment property to enjoy a good reputation in the community? and be known as a reasonably safe place to live? Do you want your residents and staff to feel safe while living or working on your property and not suddenly quit work or terminate their lease out of fear of crime? Do you want more referrals from your best tenants to their friends who want to live in a community that actively practices crime prevention? You want to learn how to make the criminal element feel uncomfortable living or hanging out in your property and simply send them packing down the street. Do you want to reduce your maintenance costs that are associated with sudden turnover like make-ready expenses and advertising costs due to criminal activity? Do you want a higher occupancy rate? Do you want to charge a premium rent? Do you even want a waiting list? of qualified applicants who want to live a crime-free lifestyle? Do you want to reduce your exposure to premises liability lawsuits and negligence claims caused by some third-party criminal act that caused a person to be seriously injured? If your answers so far are yes, then you need the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program to support you. If you're a law enforcement agency and you want to reduce the number of calls for service, to multifamily rental housing properties in your jurisdiction, then this program is for you. Ask yourself these questions. Do you want to reduce repeated calls for service to the same high-crime multifamily housing properties by, let's say, an average of about 70%? And do you want to redirect those resources to other crime priorities in your city? Do you want to learn how to gain the trust and cooperation with landlords and managers? and work together to solve criminal activity on multifamily rental housing properties? Do you want easier access to one-third of the population that reside on private property and in rental housing? Do you want to become part of an international law enforcement organization that offers a tested model crime prevention program, training of your officers, provides support, and continuing education about reducing crime on rental housing property? Do you want your agency to enjoy a public relations benefit 
because you started a proactive, community-based crime prevention initiative? If the answers so far are yes, then you need the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program to use as your roadmap to guide you towards your crime reduction goals. You know, I've been involved in apartment rental housing and property management for over four decades, almost as long as my involvement in crime prevention and security management. I know firsthand the arguments and operational pain points on both sides of this equation. I've also been closely involved with the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program for about 20 years. I watched it develop and mature into the organized model program that it is today. I believe so strongly in the effectiveness of this program that I made it the focus of my community service. I fully support the efforts of the International Crime-Free Association and their desire to bring the law enforcement and apartment communities together to make rental housing safer for people and property. Today's special guest is Tim Ziering. He created the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program way back in 1992. There is no one better to tell you about all the aspects of this program than Tim Ziering. Let me get Tim on the line to give you a thorough understanding about how the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program could benefit you. We'll be right back after a short break. This is the Crime School Radio Show. After a short break, we will introduce today's special guest. Welcome back from the break. Our guest Tim Ziering has joined us. Tim, please give us an overview of the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program and tell us what you're thinking about when you developed it. We also want to know your thought process about how you took an original idea to reduce police calls for service at rental housing properties and turn it into this comprehensive program to make apartment communities reasonably safe. In 1986, I graduated from the police academy, and I was working in the crime prevention unit at the same time at the Mesa Police Department. I was the only person in the crime prevention unit that had actually uh, become a police officer, and I was spending quite a bit of time in the patrol beat. I was working out in multifamily housing, and it was it was so bad sometimes we didn't even need to move the police car. We could just walk to the next call. There were so many apartment communities uh, grouped together. And it didn't take long to realize that we had a very poor relationship with the property managers. Property managers would approach us, excuse us, officers, why are you here? We'd say, get back in your apartment. It's none of your business. And there were times we'd go to the apartment manager, we're looking for information on so-and-so, and they'd say, we're not going to tell you anything, get a warrant. So it was very obvious very quickly that the relationship, if we ever even had one, was definitely broken by the time I got there in 1986. And for about six years, I worked with a broken system, beating my head against the wall, trying to figure out how to make a door. In my crime prevention training, I'd learned about shared responsibility and that crime is actually a community problem. It's not a police problem. It's a community problem, and it requires a community solution. So the fix was I had to find a way 
to get the apartment communities to buy into a joint effort to solve the problem. And that was really the genesis of sitting down and putting together a crime-free multi-housing program. But no one told the multi-housing industry about this concept, about working with the police, working with the government uh, involved in their business. No, actually, you're right. Uh, no one had. And that was one of the first things I tried to do. After uh, I had asked for permission to develop a program for Mesa, um, I went to the apartment association and tried to solicit their support. I had developed other programs prior to this, such as a um, elderly abuse project and a volunteer program for our city and you know some other programs and so they they gave me quite a bit of support to develop this program at the Mesa Police Department but I knew I needed to go to the apartment association so, so I me, went to the apartment association to ask for their support so let me guess when you had that meeting the first time with the apartment association you said I'm here from the government and I'm here to help <laughs> Well, no, I didn't actually use those words, but I'll bet you that's exactly what they heard, regardless of what it was I said. That may have been what they what they were thinking. But I'll tell you what it really um, came down to. When I first spoke to the apartment association, they they really didn't have any interest in what I was doing. It was more like this is you know something you're interested in. We've got enough other things going on. We're not really interested in that. And I, I implored them, saying, you know, these are your constituents. These are people who pay to support your association. And the director at that time likened my effort to the camel sticking its nose under the tent. And the the implication, if it wasn't the all-out accusation, was the police department really doesn't have any business sticking their nose in our business. So it did not start well. And in fact, it was uh, almost a year and a half later that they came back to me and said they wanted to be a part of the program. Well, there's probably some basis for that, like you recognize. Uh, the orientation of landlords is that the police don't play well. They don't cooperate. They don't share. They don't help us when we need them. When we call and we got a serious problem, they won't solve it, and they won't kick the bad guys off my property. Absolutely. And there's another component, too, and not, not just the distrust that you're talking about, but you've never walked a mile in my shoes. You don't even know what you're talking about. You know, what you do over there in your police department world is night and day with what we do in the landlord-tenant world. So how are you going to come in here and help us with our problem? And there had to be some truth to that, frankly. How much did you know about rental housing when you first started? You're absolutely right with that observation. They, they did have some truth, if that's in fact what they were thinking, because I hadn't walked a mile in their shoes. And, and really, my whole approach was, can we sit down and educate each other? In fact, we, we even started a program a little later on called Walk a Mile in My Shoes, where the uh, people from the apartment association and landlords would come out and spend time with the police department, and police coordinators would spend time with the apartment association uh, I was fortunate enough to attend some training. I know you're certified in the CAM program, and I was um, permitted to spend time in training as well. So it, it really boiled down to we need to spend time walking in each other's shoes so we can understand where each other's coming from, and then we can collaborate. Let's uh, define a, a term here. CAM stands for Certified Apartment Manager, and that's a certification that's uh, earned through the National Apartment Association. 
that takes about 40 hours of very comprehensive uh, training. So, uh, yeah, they know a lot more than you did when you first came around, and you're speaking Greek to them. Sure. But unfortunately, they didn't understand law enforcement because you've heard the question asked a million times. Why did the police let that person go? What they don't understand is law enforcement only has the power to bring a person in front of a judge. Once we get them in front of the judge, we have no more power. If the judge chooses to release that person or are them or, you know, whatever, that's not the police department's responsibility. And yet when something happens where somebody commits a crime, they're back in the apartment again, they blame the police. Now, back in those days, too, you probably learned fairly quickly uh, when you fired the question back to the landlords, hey, why don't you evict this guy? Or why did you rent to this knucklehead in the first place? What did you find was their response? Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems I had when I started this program, and this is why I say it was an evolution, not a revolution, the landlord-tenant laws in Arizona were very archaic. The way the laws were written, a tenant could literally smack another tenant in the head and if they were up to date on paying their rent, a property manager could not evict them. They, um, it was really a situation where they would say, you have more power to arrest them than I do to evict them. And so that was really the genesis of changing landlord-tenant law and working with the apartment association so that the crime-free program could work for property managers to evict problem tenants. And at the same time, we instituted into statute provisions where property managers could run criminal history checks to prevent these people from coming in in the first place. Now, as you know, I work all over the country for many, many years, and I've hardly ever heard of a crime prevention program that generated legislation that was so far reaching into a specific industry like rental housing. How hard was that to get done? Well, actually, um, it was difficult, but not for me. As I said, there was about a year and a half gap between the time that the apartment association told me they weren't interested in the crime tree project and the time when they came back and said they were. But by that time, frankly, I didn't need them anymore. And uh, there were a couple of guys, one of them the director of public relations and another guy, I can't remember what his title was, uh, they said to me, well, if you will let us get involved in the crime-free program, we can help by lobbying to the legislature to get your crime-free addendum put into statute. And that immediately changed my mind uh, back again to working with them. But to be quite honest, I was pretty put out by the fact that they had not helped me the first year plus. And uh, when they came back and made that generous offer to lobby to the legislature and get this done, that really began a fantastic relationship and things got better immediately. So that's something you and I are very big on, isn't it? Having critical partnerships in these different industries, because we can't do it together. We really need to work together. Some people or some organizations or agencies are just better at getting certain things done. Well, certainly. And, and police officers or even government employees are not allowed to lobby to the legislature, but these, um, these associations, they have people that specifically work with the legislature. So for me, it would have been impossible to do it anyway. 
Um, I, I think really, I'm not trying to blame the apartment association for the slow start. I just don't think they really caught the vision. And you know, there's, there's always a basic distrust when somebody from the government says, I'm here to help you, as you had alluded to earlier. So I just think it was a matter of them catching the vision. And once the program had been up and running for a period of a year plus, they really had a chance to see how the program was going to work. It was no longer a vision. It was something they actually recognized as a success. Now, you came up with the name Crime Free. Did you get any grief or, or fight any resistance initially when you tried to label the program as the crime-free multi-housing program and sell it to landlords? You bet I did. In fact, it even lasted for quite a while. Even now, every once in a great while, I'll get somebody who will question me about that. Um, I looked at sugar-free, fat-free, you know, other terms, and drug-free school zones. And if you see a sign that says drug-free school zone, do you really believe that if a drug-sniffing dog went in there and sniffed backpacks and lockers and teacher's desks, that they wouldn't find any drugs anywhere in that school. Uh, if you do, I've got a bridge in Ajo, Arizona I'd like to sell you. Uh, the truth is, drug-free school zone doesn't mean there are no drugs in the school zone. It means don't you bring drugs into the school zone, because if you do, there's going to be a serious penalty. And with the crime-free program, we weren't trying to imply there are no crimes here. What we were trying to imply is you must live a crime-free lifestyle. So if I would have called it a crime reduction multi-housing program, we would have had them sign a crime reduction lease addendum. We would have said, for instance, you have to reduce your criminal activity by 75%. No, we had them sign a crime-free addendum to live a crime-free lifestyle. We said what we meant, we meant what we said, and that's why we named it, or I named it, the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program. Makes perfect sense. Now, back in the early days, you started to put this program together, and you realized that you had to provide training for property managers, because property managers are not law enforcement. They're not security experts. In fact, most of them probably have never sat through a single class or read a single book on crime prevention. So how did you go about fashioning uh, what components would be included in the training? That's an excellent question. Uh, there were several things I had to do before the class itself and the outline for the class. The first thing I had to do was work with the apartment association to modify their leases and their applications because so many of the property managers I talked to said, we have no choice. We have to use the application and the lease that's provided by the, the apartment association. So I spoke to the new director that had come in, and he told me he would have to check with their legal staff. But uh, when he talked to the attorney, the attorney said, absolutely, Mr. Zering is correct. There's nothing wrong with asking on the application, have you ever been convicted of any crimes? Have you ever been convicted of a felony, et cetera? Uh, that was a big change. Once the managers knew that the apartment association not only supported the program, but that their paperwork supported the program, then the next thing I needed to do was develop an outline. And in the outline itself, I wanted to have a general introduction to what crime prevention is all about, because they don't understand crime prevention. Most people, when they think of crime, they think of it's purely a police department problem. When we have a problem, we just call the police and let them deal with it. 
and that would include problem tenants. And I had to tell them the worst time to screen your tenants is during the eviction process. Mm-hmm. Crime prevention is about assessing this person before you approve them and not running to knuckleheads in the first place. And then there were other components that went beyond just the tenants themselves, how you prepare the property so it doesn't provide an invitation to criminals, how you deal with noncompliance, how you work in partnership with the police, the proper ways to serve notices, because even though these people knew property management better than I did, many of them did not understand the proper way to serve notice and didn't even know about all the various notices. So I incorporated the help of a drug detective, gang detective, a local landlord-tenant attorney. I joined the program about a year to a year and a half after I started the program, and he started teaching in my classes, and that really made a big difference. Now, this first program that you're describing here, you called it Phase 1, and Phase 1 was just that. It was really an orientation to crime prevention. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I had looked at other programs around the country. I don't take credit for being the first person to ever do landlord training. And I know landlord's a pejorative term for many people that are property managers, but the Landlord-Tenant Act refers to them as landlords. And for lack of a better term, even though I don't use that term in a classroom, uh, I'll use that term here. There had been several other landlord training programs like the Certified Apartment Manager Program, CAM, and uh, Denver or the Colorado area had a program called SWAT, Social Weapons and Tactics. My hometown in South Bend, Indiana, uh, Stephen Lukey, who was a council member, later became mayor, had a training program for landlords. And, and there were just lots of different programs all over the country, but they were never really well accepted and never developed to the degree of my program, you know, either on a statewide basis, a national basis, or internationally, because many of them were perceived as the big bad police sitting in a dark smoke-filled room with these big bad landlords plotting the demise of these poor innocent tenants that are committing crimes because they're survival crimes. Uh, They sell drugs to augment their income or whatever reason, but they're survival crimes. And so I realized that merely having a training program would not be good enough because it could still be perceived as unbalanced, the police and the landlords teaming up against the tenants. So I felt to give the program balance, I had to add another component to the program, which was tenant training. Uh, Later, that became phase three, but for a while, it was phase two, where after we trained the landlords, I would then go out and train the tenants, pretty much like neighborhood watch, block watch, observe and report, but also explain to them that the crime-free lease addendum meant they could not engage in any type of criminal activity any member of their family or a guest or the entire apartment would be evicted. And then probably six months after that is when I added in a component for the physical security of the units themselves. And that became the second phase, pushing safety socials for the residents out to the third phase. Uh, This truly was an evolution throughout the first year. Um, You know, I started over and not necessarily completely over, but I I, I started over um, looking, you know, the way I had done things with looking at new ways to do things. Well, phase one, as I see it, the majority of the landlords or the property managers go through phase one and may go no farther. So you want to at least give them all the core components, as I see it. 
and teach them things that they don't already know. Beyond property management, you said you're teaching them about drugs, how to recognize it, what it smells like, gang activity, uh, how to deal with that situation, uh, even legal notices and the eviction process. And probably the big kahuna is the uh, screening process. Now, you mentioned the crime-free lease addendum. That's kind of a, a foreign term to uh, many people, but that the genesis of that sort of came out of the legislative process. But describe a little bit what exactly is that crime-free lease addendum. When I first started looking at the problem and talking to property managers, they explained to me, you know, I can't evict the person. They paid the rent. And there is a lease provision that says if you don't pay the rent, you can be evicted. Or if you commit any noncompliance with the lease, you can be evicted. Uh, in Arizona, there's a statute. It's ARS 33-1342. Not that it really matters, but if your listeners want to Google search it, it's a statute that's pretty much uniform all across the United States. The statute that preexisted, the crime-free program, said a landlord may from time to time, adopt rules or regulations, however described, concerning the tenant's use and occupancy of the premises. It went on to say that the rules were enforceable if their purpose is to preserve the landlord's property from abusive use, to hold up for the tenants in general, a property that's safe for foreseeable purposes, and if those rules are applied for the basic reasons for which they were adopted. So I'm looking at the fact that they can make rules. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to create an addendum to the lease that says that the resident, any member of the resident's household or a guest or any person affiliated with the resident shall not engage in any type of drug-related activity that would be selling, using, storing, manufacturing, you name it. Also, they can't be involved in any type of threatening or intimidating behavior. Uh, frequently, the police would go out to a property and they couldn't arrest somebody because they didn't actually make a threat. It was, however, very intimidating what they did, but it didn't rise to the level of probable cause to make an arrest. So I wanted to incorporate into this new addendum to the lease that even intimidation of another person under a civil preponderance, not a criminal preponderance, just a mere civil preponderance could lead to the eviction of a tenant who is causing problems. And then I threw in a bunch of other things like discharge of a firearm, prostitution, and on and on and on. Uh, with the statute in place, the crime-free addendum was appropriate. So not only have you had the legislature fully behind this, also had some uh, courts, actually some high-level courts, reviewed this type of an addendum. Yeah, actually, that was one of the greatest things for the, uh, the growth of the program. The legislature not only recognized that the crime-free lease addendum fit hand-in-glove with the statute 33-1342, but they actually adopted a brand-new statute. And in fact, if you look at the statute in one hand and the crime-free addendum in the other hand, it's virtually word-for-word word how a landlord can evict one strike you're out. The word got up to President Bill Clinton in the early 90s, early to the later 90s, or mid-90s, I should say, and in January of 1996, now my program started in 92, 
The legislature put this into effect in 94. In 95, the word got to President Bill Clinton, and in his State of the Union address in January of 1996, President Clinton stood in front of the entire U.S. Congress and the American people, and he said, Drug criminals and other tenants that are involved in crimes are jeopardizing the health and safety of good tenants from now on. The rule ought to be one strike, you're out. He asked for the Congress, an act of Congress, literally, to put this into law. And just three months later, President Clinton signed it. So in the spring of 1996, we had an act of Congress. And four years later, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard a challenge from California. It was uh, Dan Davis, the administrator of the Oakland Housing Authority, uh, who had evicted Pearlie Rucker, not because she was engaging in drug activity, but her family members were engaging in drug activity. And the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which some people would brand as being fairly liberal-minded, uh, ruled in favor of the one strike you're out and upheld that a person could in fact be evicted for the behavior of their family members. This was challenged all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And on M March, I believe it was March 22nd, it was, it was early in March in 2002, the United States Supreme Court did something they very rarely ever do. They ruled unanimously in favor of one strike, you're out. And Chief Justice, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist himself, wrote the opinion for the court. So with the advent of the Arizona legislature, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decision, and later the U.S. Supreme Court decision, uh, we saw the crime-free program just explode, not only nationally, but internationally. Because now you have something to offer to landlords and property management companies. Uh, you've laid the foundation for them uh, to help them with their, their screening process, with their rules and regulations, and enforcement of their own lease. So congratulations on getting that done. So all that's part of phase one training. Now let's move yeah, on. I'd like to add one other thing real quick, if I could. The, the decision from the courts uh, really revolved around evicting people. The idea of discriminating against a person because of their criminal history really did not come into any of those court decisions. Federal fair housing laws say you cannot discriminate against race, color, religion, national origin, handicap, gender, etc., because nobody chooses to be born a particular color. Nobody chooses to be born in a particular country. Nobody chooses to be born with a handicap, etc. And and what I was arguing to the ACLU and tenant rights groups is that if a person chooses to sell drugs or they choose to manufacture drugs, this is different than what the fair housing laws typically protect. And the attorney general's office in Arizona said that they would certainly defend if there was any uh, action taken against the crime-free program, and it did not take long for the civil rights groups to back down and admit 
that discrimination against somebody for committing drug crimes or violent crimes uh, did not amount to illegal discrimination. We never actually had a court challenge on that. It was always widely accepted by HUD, and HUD themselves developed in 2002 a document for mandatory screening and eviction uh, under President Clinton's uh, proposal to them. So HUD adopted that without any challenge from the court referring to criminal background checks. But what I meant by screening was not necessarily criminal background checks. Uh, as you know, the crime-free lease addendum is presented at the time of application. Oh, yes. To look at and review. It's part of the rules and regulations. Uh, you and I both know that some properties even have a like a poster size copy of the uh, crime-free lease addendum there to read. Oh, yeah. And that alone, we, we know, is, uh, has turned some people around. They simply left the office and said, oh, well, I'll be, I'll be back, and they never returned. I'm really glad you made that observation because that is one of the things that we taught in the class, that these residents are screening you as much as you are screening them. When a property is dirty and run down, the fences are knocked down, the weeds are growing up, cars are up on blocks, they're full of dirt and dust and spiders and vermin, and there's graffiti all over the place, this sends an environmental cue that the landlord doesn't care. A person who wants to operate illegally under the radar knows that that's a manager that's asleep at the switch. When a property manager has a property that's fit and it's in good shape and they have the environmental cues that say we care about this property, we're willing to defend the property, they put up a crime-free sign to show that they're in the program, they give the crime-free addendum up front, those prospective tenants that are screening the landlord either have the choice to say there's no way I'd live here because I'm going to get evicted in no time flat, or if they're honest law-abiding citizens, they will say this is outstanding, this is exactly the kind of property I'd like to live at. So I love your observation because you're right, this, this even goes before applicant screening. Right. This is really about the fact that the prospective tenant is screening the landlord and uh, can decide whether or not they want to live in those excellent conditions. Now, the crime-free multi-housing program and the phase one training aspect are or voluntary, for that matter. Uh, but in some jurisdictions, it's actually part of an ordinance or is mandatory for all landlords or property owners to send their staff through that training. One of the largest cities, in fact, in the country that has a mandatory ordinance, uh, certainly it's a city with name recognition as Las Vegas, Nevada. In Las Vegas, you can't, you can't even be in the business of renting apartments unless you are in the crime-free program. And their ordinance works very much like if you wanted to get a work permit to be a blackjack dealer or you know work in a casino, you have to go down, get fingerprinted, get a work permit. And the Clark County uh, ordinance uh, has now superseded the Las Vegas City Ordinance in that this program is now required throughout the entire county. And there are cities all over the country that have also seen the benefits of the crime-free program and have made it mandatory because they want property managers to uh, come to the class and see for themselves that the things that are offered really will make a difference. And Tim, I was there before, well before, during, and after 
and the landlords cried and whined and complained about the expense and didn't think there'd be any value. Boy, do they love it now. Oh, yeah. You know what? This is one of the, another obstacle I had to overcome. I had to tell them, when you look at the amount of money that you will invest in a background check, you know, $5, $10, whatever it is, when you look at the amount of money that you will invest in putting a, a deadbolt on a door, which you ought to have anyway, let, let's say it's probably more common that what they didn't have was a simple pin lock in a sliding glass door, which could cost as little as just a couple dollars. When you look at what all of these things will mean to you. Don't look at this as an expense. Look at this as an investment in your rental property. Probably the biggest expense people worried about was security lighting, uh, trimming their landscaping. Uh, you know as a premises liability expert from all of the years that you've been involved in civil litigation that if you can spend $5,000 trimming your bushes, it can save you a million dollar or plus million dollar lawsuit. Adding a couple extra lights in an area that are, you know, an area that's really, really dark can also save you a multi-million dollar lawsuit. So again, these things should not be viewed as an expense, but as an investment. And once property managers saw that, that really started to tip them my way. But the biggest thing that really tipped them was once they got the property certified, they saw people self-screening themselves away from the property saying, no, thank you. I don't want to be here. Number two, honest law-abiding citizens saying, we saw that you were a certified property. We came here specifically because the police department told us you were in the crime-free program. That's where they started seeing the greatest amount of benefits was um, less turnover, higher demand for rental units. And that's perfect. You actually change up the rental mix of tenants from bad tenants to good tenants. That's the goal. Absolutely. You know, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up. If, if an apartment manager has, let's say, 10% bad residents, 90% good, that's almost a tolerable mix. You know, most people expect you're going to get some bad with the good. And, and many of them would say, it's just not painful enough for me to go through the pain of making things change. As neighboring properties joined the program and started taking away their good residents, their residents moving out because the next door neighbor was a drug dealer, a drug user, and then other drug dealers or drug users moving that property. Now, all of a sudden, they had an 80%, 20% mix. And this 20%, these are going to be the ones that are most likely to miss their rent payment or be late or cause other problems. And pretty soon, the mix would change to 70%, 30%. Now, it was becoming painful enough that they were saying, I've got to get into the program because this is a very, very volatile mix that I've got. I'm losing people, good people, faster than ever before because I've got more and more bad people here and I'm losing more and more good people. Wow. Tim has given us so much valuable information that I think we'll stop here. One can only absorb so much content. Besides, if you're listening while driving in your car, you might be reaching your destination. If you're running on the treadmill, you might be getting tired. If you're out walking the dog, the dog might be looking at you saying, hey, are we almost done? I think you'll agree that I did not oversell how impressive Tim Ziering is and how impressive the crime-free multi-housing program is. When's the last time you got involved in a crime prevention program that was this comprehensive, this well thought out and developed, and the depth of implementation 
across North America. It's proven. It works. And it works for a very good reason. I hope you'll come back and join us for the next episode, part two of the Crime-Free Multi-Housing Program. We will go into depth about being certified in phase two and phase three. We'll get more into detail about the physical requirements, providing security of the apartment unit, including locks on doors and windows, lighting, landscaping, rule enforcement, adoption of the crime-free lease addendum as part of the lease, providing some legal backup and support for dealing with bad residents or criminal activity. We will talk about the genesis of the International Crime-Free Association and this huge network of crime-free multi-housing practitioners all across North America and how you can get involved, how you could become certified, how your property can get involved and get fully certified. We'll talk also about the Train the Trainer program where law enforcement officers who wish to be crime-free multi-housing trainers can obtain the tools they need and the training they need to implement this program in their agency. So please come back, listen to the rest of this story. I know it'll be worth your time. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGoey. We invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.